Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways, 12 Days of Christmas Guests, where we're talking to a famous face about what the Second World War means to them. On this episode of our Christmas specials, I spoke to politician, author, adventurer and podcaster, of course, Rory Stewart, about his father and uncle's service records in the Second World War. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk and our latest Christmas special. And we've got a particularly special guest today. He's a, an adventurer, a writer, landowner in Scotland, politician, charity boss, and also now, of course, co-host of the most successful political podcast there is, um, certainly cooperating out of the UK at the moment. It's Rory Stewart. Rory, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the the tentacles of the Second World War obviously run very deep, but there's a personal connection for you, isn't there? Because your uncle was not only involved, he gave his life. Yes. So my father and his brother, both Scots, both went off to school together as little boys aged eight, same school right the way through. Then they went to the same college at Oxford and they joined the same regiment. They both joined the Black Watch. But they were posted to different battalions during the Second World War. So my father eventually landed just after D-Day and was wow. was wounded at a battle actually called Rory, which was... Uh, <laughs> yes, I know uh, all about Rory. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But his brother was sent uh, with the Angus Battalion of the Black Watch to the Middle East and was wounded at Alamein, returned to a hospital in Jerusalem, was patched mm-hmm. up. Um, deployed back to what is now Libya, yep. and then was moved across to Sicily and was eventually killed in Sicily. Right. And so my father, whose parents were living in India and who was only 11 months younger than his brother, had lost essentially the only person in his life. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing after mm. 20 years of being completely inseparable um, for that to happen. Goodness me, it is amazing how these 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 losses affect people. I mean, I remember talking to Tony Benn, um, whose older brother, I think he was called Michael, was in the RAF and was killed. And and you know, he just never got over it at all. I mean, it it, it had a profound and, and lasting effect on him. And then I think in the case of my father's parents. So my my grandfather in in those days you only got leave from India once every four years and so my grandfather had come back when the boys were three and then he'd come back again when the boys were seven and my father said took them on a very unsuccessful holiday to the Isle of Skye where it rained a lot but <laughs> he had no idea how to deal with two little boys because he hadn't seen them then the next leave when they were supposed to be eleven he was sick so he didn't come back. And by the time my father saw him again, my father was on his way to deploy to Japan. So he'd been patched up after Normandy and was arrived in India um, with his battalion on his way, theoretically, to go and fight in Asia. 
Yeah. And by that time, had sort of met his father, I think, something like four times in his life. And by that time, his father's eldest son was already dead. And he was looking at this kind of young officer. So, and, and for my father's mother, she made it very clear that George, the eldest boy, uh, was, was her favorite and that she felt it very unjust that it had been him that had been killed. So, Oh my I think goodness! A lot of this stuff is is very peculiar. Yeah, I mean that whole sort of colonial era, isn't it? That uh, that notion of sort of sending packing children off to prep school and then boarding school, and and you know they'd spend sort of holidays and you know half term with aunts in Folkestone or somewhere. And I mean, just extraordinary the amount of people that you know I've interviewed over the years who were in that exactly that boat, and they just had no knowledge of their parents whatsoever. I mean, they were total total strangers and i guess that's exactly i mean that's the point you're making isn't it about your your uncle and your father and the relationship they had because they had no one else so they you know they're, they're obviously incredibly tight i remember there was um hugh dundas who was known as cocky dundas um and his older brother john they both again they were both inseparable as children and and you know, got on incredibly well, and Cocky absolutely adored his older brother, John. And they both joined the RAF, you know, auxiliary squadrons. So they were kind of sort of weekend flyers before the war. And um, John ended up flying in 609 Squadron. And Cocky just couldn't get a place in 609, which was the, the West Riding um, Auxiliary Squadron up in Yorkshire. But he ended up in 616, which was another kind of Yorkshire auxiliary unit. And John didn't make it. You know, he he was killed. He he shot down a, an incredibly um, successful German ace called Helmut Vick um, just off the coast of the Isle of Wight. And then he was promptly shot down himself and, and went straight into the drink. And, you know, that was that. And again, it's kind of... You know, it's absolutely clear that that Cocky really struggled to kind of ever really properly get over that. And funny enough, it, John Dundas's Spitfire is the one that's now hanging, or one of the ones that he used, is one of the ones that's hanging in the atrium of the Imperial War Museum. If you've ever been in there and, and seen that well, Spitfire, there. This, I mean, it's obviously something you you feel because you're somebody with a brother. But my my father very much felt that his elder brother was a very sort of thoughtful, poetic type, right. and all the way through school. My father, who was the kind of hard man in the family, was looking after his <laughs> older brother and kind of beating right. up the bullies and digging him out of the hole in rugby matches. And so I think he also felt very concerned when his brother went off to war that he wasn't with him to protect him right? and that his brother was a very unsuitable soldier. There's a lovely account, though, from – I mean, I've been through um, all their letters and there's an extraordinary account. Well, from, I was just about to ask you about that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating firstly, the way that George describes the beginnings of what they were going through at Alamein. So he'd been out laying white lines for the advance before uh, dawn. Yep. And there had been the most extraordinary carnage in his battalion. So mm -hmm. although he was only wounded, an incredible number of officers had been killed. And mm -hmm. he then sits in Jerusalem paradoxically listening to German music and writing letters to my father about what a beautiful concert he's just heard from the Berlin Philharmonic. Extraordinary. And then he's patched up and sent back again. And they work their way through these places in Libya, which I actually saw when I, I visited just after Gaddafi fell. Um, the officers then wearing strange sunglasses and yep. again, a sense of him readjusting back to his battalion. Then a letter when he arrives in Sicily, 
which he's written to his father describing an event the day before, how he had, they'd come across some German armored personnel carriers and he tried to attack one and flung a hand grenade at the side of it. And he then gorged himself in an orchard on fruit and made himself hmm. incredibly sick. So he had a runny tummy yeah. and he'd written a letter to his father saying, when you send me stuff from India again, could you please include some stuff for a runny tummy? Because I've already kind of screwed myself up. But he's writing it on the base of a cliff with a German unit right above them. And somebody has made a huge error and has marched them up to the base of this cliff right underneath this German unit. And there are these incredible noise of these various German rockets and mortars flying over their heads. And George is eventually, I think, simply killed by one of these things falling down on top of him in this very, very hot day. And this letter, which made it to his father, had been a letter that he'd completed about an hour before he was killed. So that in the series of letters going through, there's then a, a letter from his commanding officer and from his company commander to, to my grandmother, saying how brave he'd been the day before and saying they were going to come and call on her. But then they were both then killed before they could get back to see her. And in fact, from his battalion in the Black Watch, by the end of the war, because they were then deployed to Normandy again, 400... Was it part of the 51st Highland Division, presumably? Uh, yes, for the, for the second time round. So 471 soldiers and officers had been killed by the end of the war, which yeah. was, um, you know, almost the entire fighting unit of the battalion had been killed, replaced, killed, replaced. I mean, it was, uh, mm -hmm. And he missed a final engagement in, um, in Normandy. But my father was very, very angry. He'd been a battle school instructor. So he was, my, my father died about uh, 10 years ago. So he talked to me a lot about this. So he'd been a battle school instructor. And what he'd been trying to teach people to do was fire and maneuver. So they were meant to be getting down and standing up. That's and right. Using hedgerows. But they arrived in Normandy and the commanding officer of my father's battalion, who'd been in the First World War, as soon as they got there, insisted that they advance line abreast straight towards the German guns, because he believed all the stuff they'd been learning at battle school was sort of newfangled nonsense, and he couldn't trust the soldiers to lie down and get up and fire a maneuver. And so an entire platoon was wiped out with its and uh, somebody described seeing them with the officer, the sergeant, the corporals, the lance corporals and the privates all lined up in a perfect line uh, taken down by the German guns. My father in a complete mad fury with his commanding officer, because he said that he never saw the Germans doing that. He saw the Germans using cover, creeping along hedgerows, hiding in trees while they were behaving as though they were at the Battle of Waterloo. Absolutely extraordinary. I mean, have you, have you ever been to Sicily? No. Well, it's it, so the fifty first Highland. They they basically went through the middle and they ended up sort of going around um, Enna, which is this town, which is absolutely almost dead centre of of the island. And it used to be the old uh, back in the day, it used to be the old the old capital. And they had this incredibly long tramp up from the kind of southeast corner of Italy up through this central bit, and it was they were basically marching because to start off with, the the lorries were, you know, there was only so much shipping, and so the infantry. Uh, they front-loaded the infantry to make sure that they actually created the bridgehead that they needed when they first landed, first invaded. So getting large numbers of infantry on and, and, and their ammunition stuff was a priority, and vehicles weren't. So it took quite a long time for them to sort of catch up. So having sort of waded into the sea and then come up, you know, and had this absolutely blistering heat, um, they're then marching all the way across, basically, you know, having dealing with rear guards, German rear guards and what have you. 
and then they push up and they they end up coming across this ridge just to the west of 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 the um Jabini airfield complex which is at the kind of sort of western extremes of the Catania plain and just at this point the hills are all starting to to come up and there are these that you do get these sort of craggy cliffs and things and then they attack them. There's a very famous picture of, of, of some Tommies in short, sort of crouching with their rifles and bayonets, going along a sort of railway line with buildings either side. And, and that's where they were attacking. That, that, that was it down into this valley and then up the other side. And the Germans had their guns behind the other, the, the, the valley, you know, the hills on the other side of the valley and were kind of lobbing them over. And, and there was this, this sort of awful actions where they had to basically go across from one high ground to catch the other high ground. And of course, it's a, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And the interesting thing is the 51st Highland Division has got this little memorial on the top of the, of the first ridge that they, they reached. And you can only get to it by going along a long sort of craggy, farm track and then going through wheat fields and then up along a, another sort of field line and eventually you get to it and there it is and it's a lovely place to go to because because no one else goes to it so you feel kind of rather honor bound to kind of pay your respects to the the fine fellows of the 51st island division because it is so bereft and it's a very kind of moving place because it's so it's so sort of lonely and you know yeah forgotten about well, my, my father, my father, well, I didn't go with him, sadly. I, I, I went with him to Normandy, but he, he went to see where his brother was buried and, and, and tried to retrace some of that. So I'm sure he saw, saw some of that. Um, I mean, it was absolutely brutal on Sicily because I remember sort of looking at a Bidecker guide, um, I think sort of, you know, from the early 1930s. And it said, whatever you do, don't ever go to Sicily in July or August. It's absolutely just torture. Of course, that's exactly the months that they, yeah, the campaign takes place, and then they issued all the um, all the troops with a little sort of guide to a soldier's guide to Sicily. It was a little sort of blue, little sort of cardboard covered little pamphlet, and it talks about it it's saying saying only the hardiest Sicilian can kind of stomach the local fruit. You know, don't don't try and eat too much. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, there, there was something he should have been reading that bit. He should sure. have read it. You know, had he read yeah. it, he wouldn't have had the jippy yeah. the jippy yeah. tummy. He'd have been yeah. he'd have been absolutely fine. But I think what you, I mean, you know, what you're highlighting, of course, is is that if you were frontline troops in the Second World War, your chances of getting through unscathed are actually worse than they were in the First World War, as a as a statistic. So you know, even in the Normandy campaign, for example, the daily casualty rate was worse than the daily casualty rate in the Battle of the Somme and Passchendaele and Verdun. I, I can totally believe that. And and my father said, so my father was commanding an anti tank platoon at Rory, and. They had an enormous amount of success taking out a series of German tanks coming towards them. But by the time they'd finished, every single one of them was either dead or wounded. Yeah. But I think the other thing that I, I, my father was loved the army. I mean, he, he, he worshipped it. And although he went on to be a colonial officer and then, uh, then joined SIS, he was a spy, remained very military all his life and very right. focused on the Black Watch. But it was combined with a real fury at what he saw as the stupidity of so many of his commanding officers. So yep. he was eventually wounded in, in Normandy because the company commander insisted on having a conversation in the middle of an open field standing up in a, yep. a carrier, at which point people started firing tank shells at them and took out the top of my father's leg. But um, it, it was very odd the way in which he balanced his kind of love of the military with a total rage against that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I'm glad to say that, the you know, there were lots of extremely competent commanders and battalion commanders and, you know, and they ended up, of course, you know, ended up being the brigadiers and all the rest of it. And 
you know, there was there was just such a mixture. And of course, it all came down from the top. And, you know, the, broadly speaking, I think the battle schools where your it sounds like your father was 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 an instructor, you know, they were incredibly sensible and you know, for people who don't want to be soldiers, keeping it simple and, and, and training under live ammunition and stuff is a very good idea. Um, so all of those, I think, work, work pretty well. It's just you did have these idiots who wouldn't be told and effectively were suicidal. And, and, and if your commanding officer is suicidal, then, then that tends to have a kind of knock-on effect to everybody else because you, you're kind of attracting the danger. The other thing I hadn't picked up from reading, but was so clear talking to my father, is how many people he knew had been killed without actually getting anywhere near the enemy. Right. So at battle school, one of the, you know, he was one of his, the officers he was training sort of got in a frozen funk on the edge of a cliff, which they were supposed to be going down on a rope. And my father said, get on with it. And the guy just sort of stepped off the cliff and didn't hold on to the rope and wow. died. And then the first soldier he lost on landing on Normandy beaches wasn't from a German. It was that at night he decided to try to get his fire going by putting a putting pouring petrol on top of it and had blown himself and three other people up. So there were oh an enormous God. number of That's these crazy. sort of stories of people. And then, of course, working out how you tell their parents. Yeah. But Rory, I mean, presumably when you were growing up, you, you, I mean, was the Second World War kind of much on your, I mean, was it on your radar? I mean, you knew what your father and uncle had done, did you? I mean, yes, well, very, very age? much. I mean, my father, I was very close to my father. So, I mean, as you can pick up from the number of anecdotes I'm able to produce, he talked about it. Yeah, no, no, it's in, a, the in, detail in, is impressive. He talked about it incessantly. Uh, right. Uh, so it was just there. It was kind of something in the background. Well, so, so it was that. So, and, and, and yeah, and I, I joined the Black Watch. I was actually in the army very briefly, but I, that was because of my father and his father had been in the Blackwatch yeah. and his grandfather had been in the Blackwatch. And I grew up particularly in that part of Perthshire, surrounded. The joke when Alec Douglas Hume became our MP is that the only people living in our county were black-faced sheep and Blackwatch colonels. So, <laughs> but it, it wasn't just the Second World War. The, I had two neighbours who weren't speaking to each other because they'd both been in the same battalion during the Korean War. And had had a, right. and, and had had a great disagreement about what they were doing during the Korean War, and continued to live ten miles apart, refusing to speak to each other. <laughs> That's just extraordinary. But Rory, you know, it, it, I mean, what do you think of the legacy of the Second World War now? I mean, you know, I know the sort of accusation is that we Brits are obsessed with it, and, and you know, never stop talking about it, and everyone else needs to move on, and all the rest of it. Um, and I guess that's a pretty, you know, it's a reasonable, um, reasonable argument. But on the other hand. The tentacles of the war, you know, they are still there, aren't they? They are. They are. And I think it, I mean, obviously it continues to define us in every single way for positive and negative. I mean, I think one of the problems as a politician is it's seen in such a positive light that it leads us to misunderstand so much of what comes afterwards. It drives mm. romantic ideas around Brexit. It means that almost every yes. form of political or diplomatic engagement is framed in terms of appeasement. And yep. we find it very difficult to look clearly at what was specific about the Second World War. And we learn all the wrong lessons from it again and again, because it was a time of such understandable national pride. Um, but that the myths around it have continued to be very, very strange and damaging and misleading. 
Yeah, I well, I would completely agree with that. And yes, and sort of using Churchill as a Brexit figure, I kind of, you know, it always makes me bulk a little bit, I have to say. Um, it, it's interesting because I remember in, in 1960, they were sort of, it was the 20th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And Macmillan said, I don't think we should make any fuss about this at all. I mean, you know, who cares about what happened 20 years ago now? You know, and there was, and it was really, really low key. And actually, in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, of course, you had all those movies, you know, from sort of, Crazy things like where he goes there through to, I don't know, Bridge Too Far or whatever it might be. But actually, I don't think it was until 1995 that we we really started to go on the big memorial bandwagon th- in this th- country, That which yeah. was the 50th anniversary. That was that was definitely the biggest yeah. up until that point since 1945. Well, it was odd, wasn't it? And, that- and it's an interesting time in our, in our you know, in our, in our lives because, you know. And, and we also became, I think it's also a change in British culture that we became more comfortable talking about those things. I mean, I think that there was a very, very strong dominant culture after the First World War, which remained very stiff upper lip and very understated, and which probably would have seen too much celebration as being a bit over the top. The the exception being obviously you know, the armistice celebrations and Remembrance Sunday. But with the exception of that, I don't think that, that you know, many of the, that generation, the generation born in I guess the sort of 1890s probably wouldn't have been totally comfortable with these endless celebrations. I mean, it's interesting to see how Britain responded to anniversaries from, well, even the Waterloo anniversary, oddly. I mean, I felt that the 200th anniversary of Waterloo almost felt sort of more dramatic than the 100th anniversary. And people tried to <laughs> yes. have a... And actually, and, and Trafalgar as well and, was quite big. Yeah, and people tried to have a big, big go at an anniversary of Agincourt, which I guess nobody paid much attention to for the previous 400 years. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe we just love anniversaries now. I mean, I, what I have noticed is is that sort of, you know, as the veterans get older, so the anniversaries get get more and more um, full on. And I suppose that's because, you know, everyone's sort of worrying about the trauma that's going to face us when the last veteran, the fight, combat veteran of the Second World War goes. You know, it is it is a big moment because it's going from living history into My actual My father history. got caught up in this as a 92-year-old. He was, you know, he was... A portrait of him was painted, which is now in St. James's Palace, and because he was the only one left of five and a half thousand people in his brigade. And wow, I mean, that in itself is quite something. Yeah, but it was very, very interesting seeing how he and the other dozen men who were being painted responded to the questions they got. So, a lot of the journalists I was with them when they were being interviewed wanted to talk to them about trauma and wanted to read in the faces of these old men a mm. sense of tragedy and death and horror. And actually, they, on that occasion, seem to mostly want to tell sort of boys' own stories So um, and, and refuse to sort of fall into the mode of young journalists <laughs> trying to get them to talk as Good though they were them. Vietnam veterans. Them. Yeah. Well, I remember talking to Lynn MacDonald at great length about all this, and she was the great chronicler of the First World War, particularly of the British experience. And I remember her saying, you know, what's the, what's the one adjective we use to describe the experience of the of the trenches? And I said, well, I don't know, horror. And she went, exactly, exactly, horror. She said, it's the one word that in 1,200 hours of interviews with veterans I've, from the First World War, I've never heard them use to describe their experiences. They're all quite proud it's amazing, of what no, It's amazing, done, no, exactly. And I'm sure that's true. And certainly with they, these- They don't want to feel like they were exactly. large, led by Second World, War, Second World War veterans were all full of telling stories about how they managed to shoot a German sniper out of a tree. And you could see the journalists yeah. interviewing them turning slightly white as these more and more kind of bloodthirsty yeah. 
accounts. Yeah. I think she's- and then I kicked the door down. I mowed them all down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I suppose I was thinking really more about sort of things like Ukraine and, 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 you know, it, it's, it's been, you know, one of, one of the things that I find, found just so, so horrifying is that the, once the smart weapons get out of the way, you know, you haven't got laser guided missiles anymore. You've just got sort of artillery firing shells. And of course, the scenes are exactly the same as they were in the Second World War and ditto with, with Syria and everything, you know, just sort of mad demolitions and destruction of towns and cities and beautiful places and lives destroyed. Uh, and, you know, the scenes of sort of burnt out tanks and vehicles and stuff in Ukraine doesn't look terribly dissimilar to me to many photographs I've, and footage I've seen from the Second World War. And it's and it's a reminder that, you know, here they are again in Ukraine fighting over, you know, Kiev and, you know, Dnipro and all these places and Kharkiv. You know, these are all names that had such resonance from the Second World War and they're being fought over again all these years later. It's, you know, it's sort of singularly depressing. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's very, very sad. Um, and, and of course it does. I mean, it, and, and yeah, the echoes are there. And, and I think there are important. I mean, on the one hand, I'm saying that we, we don't want to overread these things and read too much of the Second World War. But on, on the other hand, I think dealing with Putin, there are important lessons when Macron's talking about respecting his legitimate security concerns, where we do need to be reminded of the, the, the temptations for appeasement. Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's it's a, it's the shadow that's been have, hovering over. I think the the, the Russian Ukraine war. I mean, you know, um, Putin sort of slinging shots about Zelensky being a, a Nazi and 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 so on, and and the Ukrainians all being Nazis, um, and, and the Western media all comparing Putin to to Hitler rather than rather than to Stalin. I mean, it's it's just it's 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 just still all there, isn't it? That's just what's so. Incredible, and is as I say, you know, completely depressing. But, um, but Rory, on that rather somber note, I know you've got to dash and go and do some calls. But, um, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for having me. Wow, amazing! Though I bet those letters were quite something to read. Thank, thank you very much for having me, and it's great, great to talk to you. All right, cheerio, bye bye. 